A quick fact before we get into today's episode. There are less than 10,000 bilbies left in Australia. 10,000? I had no idea it was so few. Which is why I'll be buying a bright pink Daryl Lee milk chocolate bilby this Easter. The good folks at Daryl Lee will again donate 20 cents from every deliciously smooth and creamy milk chocolate bilby sold to the Save the Bilby Fund. So do your bit and buy a Daryl Lee bilby for mum. Buy one for the kids. Buy one for your Uncle Steve. And help this cute and very important Australian animal survive for decades more. You can't miss them. Just look for the bright pink Daryl Lee Bilby and Woolworth stores right across Australia, which is where I hope we see many more Bilbies in years to come. Daryl Lee makes it better. You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi, I'm Nigel Marsh, and this is the Five of My Life podcast the show where five choices reveal sideways insights into the lives, opinions and lessons of interesting people. I was delighted when Josh agreed to take the Five My Life Challenge. I first became aware of him because of his work presenting Weekend Breakfast on ABC News and then went on to discover some of his other roles, be it as founding host of the HuffPost Live or as a regular contributor on NBC's Today Show or his much-talked-about regular appearances on the world's most popular podcast, The Joe Rogan Show. But the thing I most admire amongst Josh's varied output is none of the above. It's his fabulous show, Uncomfortable Conversations. Far beyond it being a vastly entertaining and enjoyable programme, which it is, I feel it is actually an important and much-needed addition to the media landscape in these troubled times. A place for intelligent, nuanced and crucially helpful debate josh welcome to five of my life thank mate. you i can't wait so I'm delighted we, so you're having a bit of a nightmare day lost oh cat and you've got goodness. to go on sky lost. news or something or yes, fox well, news or whatever there are lots of <laughs> fox news uh there are lots of things going on the, the most important of which was that my three-month-old kitten Yes. Uh, ceased to exist inside the borders of my house. Right. Which was very traumatising for my six-year-old daughter, uh, who has come to love said kitten in the two weeks that we've had her. And uh, so lots of running up and down the street, screaming the kitten's name. No point. Kitten doesn't know its name yet. And where was it? Turned out to be hiding behind a chest of drawers, like inside the drawers, yeah. but behind the drawer itself. So little kitties can get into chairs. You get anywhere. Soft chairs. You go and then they in can't the get sofa. Out. You go, yeah. it, uh, what do you it mean? It was in covered the in dust. Yeah. You could barely see the kitten for yeah. the dust. <laughs> anyway. Very good. Well, listen, thank you for squeezing us in, mate. It's a delight. This is my recreation. This is my happy time. Love. No children, no lost cats. Yeah, and you, and you can pretend you're working. So you can exactly, say to, you can say to your right. partner, oh, I've got to go. Yeah, yeah I've got to, exactly. Yeah. I've got very important things to do. Nigel needs to talk to me. <laughs> um, now, we start on Five My Life with the film. Yes. And I've got to thank you, mate, because mm. I had never seen Pleasantville. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, I really adored it. I found it quite touching, but it's not about me. It's about you. Tell us why you chose Pleasantville and maybe explain very briefly, if you can, what the film is to people who haven't yeah. seen it. Yeah. So Pleasantville is, uh, is a satire of the way that we think about the past and the past being be- uh, and a revelation of how staid and conservative the past actually was in comparison to our... Uh, whimsical recollections and romanticization of the way that things used to be and the way that things would be if things were more ordered and more
more, uh, I suppose, small C conservative. I mean, the the plot basically is that a couple of teenagers in the 20th century uh, get magically transmitted back into the world of their favourite 1950s black and white television sitcom. Uh, And uh, they think it's fabulous until they realise just how boring and dull and conformist the whole thing is. And they shake up this world. And by bringing passion and sexuality and originality to this world, the black and white world starts exploding in colour. The local pastor pushes back against this as its depravity. And so so there's the, it's this rich kind of interlocking of themes about, I suppose, the virtue of, of stepping outside the box, you know, the virtue of being an outsider, the virtue of upsetting the apple cart. And it dropped at just the time when I was in my late teens and was trying to figure out what to do with my life and trying to figure out whether I should conform and how I fit in, as one does in one's teens. And there was this movie that came along where it was, it was like actually all the ways of conforming and being appropriate – uh, bonkers and bananas and it's a it, it's a it's a pathway to nowhere you just go out and do your own thing and the world will explode in color in the way that you you like you bring the color into being and that was really empowering at that time of my life and, and what were the the things that you were potentially going to conform to well that's a good question i mean um do you go into a conventional uh career which is stable or do you take risks and I went into an extremely high-risk, high-reward industry, which is entertainment and the media. Do you accept other people's checkboxes and identity buckets that they have for you? Um, you know, this was also a time in my life, I guess, where I haven't really thought about this particular layer on Pleasantville, but it was coinciding at a time when I was dating boys and I was also dating girls. I didn't feel confused, but I felt entirely uh, detached from what you might call the gay community because it was very rigid in its articulation of what gayness was. It had a certain way of walking, a certain way of talking, a certain way of dressing, a certain politics. It was oiled up hot guys sitting astride a giant inflatable penis on Oxford Street in Sydney. Uh, None of that was me. So the question of do I jump into that category and sort of come out as that thing, would would that make me a bad gay? Do I just sort of hide it and you know go along with dating girls and just assume that that's the that's the thing you do because that's the thing you do so i think those would be the probably the two things yeah how much basically how much risk do you want to take both personal and professional and how much of a middle finger do you want to give to other people who tell you about the ways that you're supposed to behave and the binary options that you have to choose between uh, are you aware of a lady called naomi mora no as a comedian I had on, she is Australia's only uh, lesbian, Lebanese, ex-Jehovah's Witness stand-up comic. <laughs> I do know this woman now that you mention her, and I may have interviewed her on uh, ABC Weekend Breakfast, which I used to co-anchor. Uh, yeah. So it leads me to want yeah. to ask you a question, because her story, I mean, I mean, I shouldn't laugh, um, uh, but I did on the, on the episode, is so she comes out to her dad, and he, he goes, not a problem, calls his wife in and his other children and says, just got an announcement, Naomi's dead. Uh, and, you, and you can fuck off. And then didn't talk to her for 20 years. I mean, literally didn't talk to her for 20 years. Unbelievable. But, but, but hardcore, letters not returned, yes. wouldn't come right. to the... Right. And then, long story short, uh, she came to the door. She kept in contact every now and then with her mum, came to the door to deliver some loo paper in COVID, and, and Dad opened the door and went, oh, hello, Naomi. Have you put on weight? Wow. And she, he went, uh, a couple of pounds, Dad. Anyway, and he got dementia. 
Ah. So it wasn't. So I'm, I'm laughing on which I shouldn't be on the episode. Right, right. So he hasn't actually come to an accommodation. Yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah, so yeah, he's just like, forgotten. At any time. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Now yeah, I remember. Yeah, that's Fuck right. Off. Or if he doesn't remember, you're going to have to tell him again. <laughs> and he's going to have the same reaction. <laughs> yeah. So, so how was your, um, uh, your, your, your mates, your school, your family, the, the, the gay thing? Was they were great. Yeah. They were great. I mean, I was growing up in a very bohemian, creative uh, enclave of a, a, of a big city. That, that was not the problem. The problem, if anything, was uh, there was there was too much of a good thing in the sense that you got to, it was fine to choose to be gay, but that meant a whole bunch of things, right? right? It was it wasn't that there was any. Uh, I mean, there was there was the latent homophobia of uh, of the nineteen nineties, but I mean, it's not it's not a big deal. I mean, um, I, I never felt like I would be demeaned or less than for coming out. I just didn't feel like um, I was coming out into anything that was constructive or that resonated so back to pleasant uh, I, I found it quite uh, i'm a bit of a softy i found it quite sort of hopeful really mm. I, I, you know people can change and all i mean it's, it's a bit clunky you know black and white goes colored yeah but the mum joan whatever she's called yeah i was just really quite lovely mm. and touching and i mean spoiler alert her epiphany comes because she masturbates in the bath but, hey that's yeah. where she like she touches herself for the first time yeah. and the world explodes i think the tree outside bursts into flames doesn't it when she does that right in, in colored flames in color flames yeah, for the yeah, first yeah. time and like and the firefighters come and the firefighters have never put out a fire before because in pleasantville all they do is, is, is cats. rescue cats out like of a tree they been, they been <laughs> <at> your house <laughs> this afternoon, mate. exactly where's the cat uh so yeah it's it's sweet i think i think that's right it also reminded me a bit of my dad like dad has a great a furious passion for uh what is beautiful about the world and what is uh you know almost he almost regarded as being our moral duty not to get bored of things and not to i'm liking him right yeah he's a great guy you know he doesn't there's no there's nothing that would have irritated him more than people being like uh oh fuck my life you know like oh blah 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 you know same same shit different day like you are alive. Yeah, We're hey. here. It's incredible. Like, you know, you could so easily not have been alive. Yeah. You know, or you could be born in some shithole. Or right. you could, you know, you might have been born a factory farmed animal or something. Yeah, you're you're yeah, a yeah. human being. There are trees and stars. You're here for like nothing. Yeah. Enjoy it. And this and I think Pleasantville kind of captures a little bit of that sense of wonder. Did I read somewhere that dad might be suffering from uh, dementia. Yes, he has Alzheimer's now. It's it's both rough and it's also corrosive precisely because it's not as rough as death, by which I mean when he was diagnosed, a lot of people said, oh, this is going to be a really long grieving process of you know losing, gradually losing someone you love. And what's really tricky about it for me, and you know maybe just around the corner I'm going to hit a uh, a wall of grief that's going to annihilate this analysis. But so far, what's tricky about it for me is that when a person dies, no matter how old they are, if they if they if their brain isn't riddled with dementia, there is some kind of cue that happens at the moment of death that provides a context for our grief. Like they are there in a way that you can talk to them, and then they're not there anymore, and you can't talk to them. You have the funeral, you go through the process that all mammals go through when they lose a loved one, and you come out the other side, perhaps refreshed, perhaps renewed, you've had some kind of a catharsis. What's weird for me about Alzheimer's is every day is incrementally the same as the last. 
and yet the person's basically gone and you've never had the cue, you've never had the context for grief. Mm. It's like this big grey smear. It's like the most mediocre disease in the world. You're going from vitality and insight and passion and astuteness to, you know, almost a vegetative state and it's a frog in a boiling pot syndrome where there's never a there's never a cue to actually reckon with it so it sort of creeps up on you or me and of course when he dies that will be a very sad day but it won't be the same as if he'd gone from just being a very old person and dying if that makes sense uh well it makes more sense than you might realize because my dad had that journey for 10 years yeah it, exactly that um, uh, and it was slightly... Did you find any grief points? Did you find any cues? So it, it was... Um, and this is five of your life, not mine, mate. But, but it, <laughs> it is, um, because he is, was in England and I was in Australia, I got the mid point of what you were talking about. So I didn't visit him every day or every week. Mm. I'd visit him once a year. Mm. And, and so, so I had a grief point... 10 years every year in a row because I would turn up and my vision of dad would be happy, smiling, laughing bloke because I would that's the vision you keep yep. in your mind yep. and then you meet some bloke strapped yep. to a, I'll start crying, strapped to a chair with a with a sort of a seatbelt thing dribbling like a skeleton he, bizarrely he had a full head of hair until the day he died you know, it, mm, so, mm. like what am I some sort of clown, every time I saw him I was shocked anew yeah, yeah. I mean I don't know whether that's worse or better in the sense that you don't have to, you don't have to be on the ride the whole time. I'm for my poor mum. Anyway, so, so, so yeah. Yeah, awful, awful. There, there you go. Hey, what, yeah. what, a, what a buzzkill we are. Yeah, but, well, I mean, but I would also just say that there's something to just bring it back to Pleasantville and to bring it back to that sense of his philosophy on life of, as being, it almost being our duty to find wonder in yeah. existence. The strange thing is he has retained that. He has not become, uh, touch word, uh, a depressive, paranoid, uh, you know, delusional, mm. deluded person. He yeah. is a cheerfully deluded person uh, and right. still remarks about how beautiful the clouds are and right. how, you know, glorious sunsets oh. are and how amazing trees are. And, you know, he doesn't really have the language to articulate that anymore, but he is he's retained that spark of joyfulness, which indicates to me that it's, Something deep and something profound in the way that he's hardwired. Yeah. Now, your second choice, it's always the book, and you've chosen The Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan. When I was in my mid-teens, someone gave me the book Cosmos, which is Carl Sagan's history of science, basically. He made a very popular television series about it in the United States, uh, which became, I think, the most watched public television show in the history of the world. And Cosmos is great if you want just a very brief, gripping, potted history of how humankind came to know the things that we know. And so there opened a period in my life where I just devoured all of Richard Feynman, Richard Dawkins and Carl Sagan, and uh, you know my mind just exploded uh, as as one as one's mind does when you're 15 and you suddenly realise anything that's you know extraordinary, whether that's losing your faith in religion or finding a religion and becoming a fundamentalist or whatever it might be. I mean, in my case, it was the true realisation that we are 
collections of rare material that spewed out of distant stars that somehow aggregated itself into organisms that have evolved to become sufficiently self-aware that they're able to figure out and deduce for themselves the fact that they are star stuff and then wonder at that as they wander around on this speck of rock whirling around a blazing nuclear power station. A vast, meaningless universe. On the outer spiral <laughs> arm of, uh, of a galaxy, which is but one of you know, hundreds of billions. Like, this was a stage in my life where I could recite the Monty Python, you know, right. uh, song, uh, the Eric Idle song, about, okay. you know, for word for word. Um, and I think the, the, the most profound book of the several that I read there was Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan, which is his a sort of call to arms to people to be rational, uh, a defense of avoiding foggy thinking, bad thinking, groupthink, um, pseudoscience, mysticism, uh, and a defense of skepticism. And he paints a picture of a world, and he's writing, I don't know when, 70s, 80s? I'm not sure when the book was published. I think it was um, 98, 95. Okay, so it must have been his last book, probably. Uh, And it's his plea and portrait of a world that could soon come to pass, and uh, where people are increasingly divided by their superstitions, conspiracy theories, gullibility, susceptibility to being uh, misled by tyrants and populists, um, susceptibility to being misled about vaccine misinformation and other forms of pseudoscience. And this kind of chaotic world of stupidity is portrayed uh, by Sagan with a terrifying sort of perspicacity because when you look back on it now, some of the things he talks about, about populist leaders playing on the worst in our in our nature, uh, you could be ripped straight out of the headlines of, of the past decade. So that, along with Unweaving the Rainbow, which is a book by Richard Dawkins, mm. which is his most poetic book, which is a, the, the title Unweaving the Rainbow refers to um, when scientists invented the prism and were able to discover what uh, what light is and that light is actually made up of a rainbow and were able to create rainbows in a lab, one man of the cloth, a religious pastor who was anti-scientific, was saying, you know, the scientists will stop at nothing. They'll just demean everything. They'll reduce, they'll even unweave the rainbow in their quest for their own, mm. you know, glory. As if it was a bad thing for us to understand rainbows, as if rainbows are more beautiful if, you, if you're ignorant of what they yeah. are. And Dawkins's point is that rainbows, you know, just as beautiful, if not more beautiful, if you understand what it is. There's a beauty and a majesty in comprehending this cosmos. And those two books, Demon Haunted World by Sagan and uh, Unweaving the Rainbow by Richard Dawkins, uh, really laid the groundwork, I think, not just for my not just for the context in which my dad's sense of wonder and majesty that we were talking about in terms of Pleasantville could find its actual fruition where I could say, yeah, it's incredible to be alive, sunsets are beautiful, and comprehending the sunset and having a respect and a reverence for our ability to comprehend things is the pathway to, uh, to appreciating the beauty and majesty of, of life and existence uh, in the absence of my being a deeply religious um, uh, person. They also, in an important way, I think, laid the groundwork for my career, which has become essentially a mission to help people think about things more rigorously and to point out the ways in which we might be mistaken, in which we might fall for bullshit, trying to have conversations that are 
fearless and honest and, uh, and, and reflect my deep faith in the utility of trying to make sense. Gosh, how wonderful that your life panned out, that those books came into your life then. So yeah. for, for me, I went to, God, I studied theology, but part of the theology was, was ethics and logic yes. and philosophy. And it's, it's brilliant because forget where you end up. You are able then to make your own mind up. I say yes. to my kids, is you, yeah. is you absolutely haven't got to agree with dad. Yeah. But you do have to be able to argue properly. Yes, just to, to sound like a boomer, which I'm, I'm not, but, uh, but I, do, I do share some of the concerns. Um, it, there is a sense, I think, among a younger generation that, that the right position to take is self-evident and doesn't really need to be interrogated. So traditionally disenfranchised or marginalised communities uh, need to be listened to, um, and they do need to be listened to. But not everything that they say is going to be true, and not everything that they say is going to be the right way forward, and not everything that they say is even going to be reflective of the ground of the of all of the opinions within that community. It might just be a university-educated, largely white language game that is being played in order to signal virtue to mostly white university-educated yeah. people about how much we care about our about people of colour or about uh, transgender people and or about indigenous people of picking a team many people i think that the, the popular the village square which is why your your uncomfortable conversations I, I have to, i'm just saying this because you're on my show it, it's bloody brilliant because you can have a conversation where you it's not about having to agree yeah. but, but can we actually talk about stuff yes i mean we're becoming more tribal we're becoming more uh it's it's just becoming harder and harder i think largely due to social media algorithms largely to to due to uh, people seeking out ideas that either reinforce what they already believe or demonize what they don't what they disagree with it's getting harder and harder to even know that the way that the things that you say could land to other people i mean I, i hope that uncomfortable conversations is a way to try to articulate at least the contours of the disagreement in a way that both that all people are going to find reasonable. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a centrist in the sense that I just think that I'm going to inhabit the halfway point between any two yeah. ideas, right? You know, if, if there were Nazis and there were anti-Nazis, I'd be <laughs> yeah. halfway between them being like, well, the Nazis have some good ideas. No, I'd be the anti-Nazi, right? But usually in a demos where there are a whole bunch of different ideas bumping into each yeah. other, there are some ways of seeing things that are pro- that you would find you know, your enemies have a way of seeing things that you would find compelling if you were them. Yeah. I mean, almost prima facie, right? If you weren't you, if you were a different person, then you would see the world the way that person yeah. sees it. And so I think a little bit of empathic imagination, intellectual imagination, intellectual empathy to say for, for us to try to articulate the way that things occur, not for us, but for people who we disagree with, is the only way for us to... I mean, stitch together a, a, a democracy and survive the 21st century, survive the challenges you, you, of the 21st century. Your, your program, uh, Uncomfortable Conversation, I, I think it is, I think it's brilliant, personally. I think it's absolutely, you. you know, it, it genuinely, I think it's important, not just brilliant. Anyway, we, we have to, we could talk. We could talk. Oh, <laughs> could we talk, ladies I can't get a gents. word in edgeways. Bloody hell, mate. Uh, your, your third choice, and, and all the songs go on to uh, the Five Man Life Spotify playlist. Great. That is a sensation because it is algorithm busting. Now, you've chosen... Empire State of Mind by Jay-Z. Tell us about that. Well, um, 
it was a time when I had uh, I'd moved to New York City. I wanted to break into broadcasting there in some capacity, and uh, I got a show on Discovery Science Channel, which was like a a smart arty look at science news, basically a weekly show. And this was in 2008. This was my first ever gig, and uh, we ran for three seasons. And the financial crisis was exploding all around us. I mean, New York City was uh, was falling apart. The United States was falling falling apart economically. It was not a good time to have a, a, a reasonably expensive topical show that couldn't go into reruns on a small network. So uh, the, the, the pin was pulled. I thought, you know, maybe I'll go to LA for a while, see if there's, you know, more opportunity out there. Went to LA for a year, lived in Venice Beach, had an absolutely miserable time. Uh, I'd lost money in the financial crisis. I'd been sold a bad investment back here in Australia before I left. And I was in debt, had no real income. And it was, it was just a, it was a bad year. And I got a job hosting a dating show, just a pilot. It was just a pilot for a dating show in New York City. And so I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll fly back over for it. It's a little bit of money, even if it's cheesy. The only time they had to rent the studio space when it was cheapest was after another show had wrapped at like 10 p.m. So they scheduled the pi- this pilot shoot in this studio in Manhattan from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. And we shot two episodes of this show. Uh, and I was really tender, seriously considering giving up the dream of presenting TV, radio, podcasts and things and thought maybe I'll just go back to Australia and become a producer or something. Maybe this has not been, you know, I gave it a shot, but get I back don't, in your I box, don't want this roller coaster. Exactly, yeah. get back in the box, go back to Pleasantville. And I walked out of the studio into the streets of Manhattan and I was staying with a friend of mine in a place that I used to live in, in uh, the East Village. And it was on the complete other side of Manhattan. So it's probably a about a 50-minute walk. And instead of getting a, a cab, I decided to just walk across Manhattan at this point. And I started listening to my playlist and Empire State of Mind came on. This was the year that it had just come out, I believe. And I walked across New York as the sun was rising and as the city was waking up at sort of five to six in the morning. And people were starting to put out their trash and people were going for jogs and homeless people were waking up and limousines were starting to cruise by. And I watched the sun rise over this metropolis and I just felt like I have to get the fuck out of Los Angeles and come back to New York and, uh, you know, have faith that something will happen. And in that moment, listening to that song, feeling all of my patriotic pride towards the big apple swelling in my chest i kind of got a reinvigorated sense of possibility of the kind of eclectic madness of new york uh, the infectious creativity of the place the ridiculous audacity of the place the contradictions of the city and uh yeah i went back to la and packed up my stuff and flew back to new york and uh the next year i met the guy who I ended up marrying and the year after that in, I in New York I, yeah in New yeah. York and the year after that I I got a job I got my big break which was uh, on uh, the Huffington Post at the time was the the most read 
online only news website in the world and they were trying to branch out into streaming video and uh, they tapped me as one of the founding producers and hosts of their streaming video network HuffPost Live which I then did for the next five years and the rest fell into place but had it not been for that sunrise walk and the dulcet tones of Jay-Z I love stories like that on Five My Life, where, where, where people sometimes like, like a film or a song genuinely change the trajectory yeah. of, of their life. Yeah, and I still can't hear it without... Like, if, if it's on in the background, I'd try to walk away, like, or I'd have it turned off. It's not something that I listen to recreationally. It's too meaningful. But it, it, it genuinely, I, I feel New York, maybe it's because of all the films or whatever, but I, I don't go there often. I've probably only been there 10 times in my life. But you know, like, it, in some ways, it's the capital of the world yeah I mean I know it isn't but, but something like you yeah. think wow and then if you're hearing that it's, it's like the, the Sinatra New York, yeah. you go standing on the street I, I, I in, in my corporate job used to have you know I'd be flying to, to meet the big global CEO and you, it would just feel slightly more important than if I was going to I don't know Boston or Paris oh, totally and you go yeah, I mean, I'm in New yeah. York and yeah. the steam yeah. coming out and yeah. Yeah, yeah it is so, yeah. so, so the guy that you met in, is that Sean that's Sean yeah is, is he a yank Yes. So you dragged him to Australia. I dragged him so, out. So here. How, God bless him. How, how God bless him. I don't know. Ask his mother how, how she feels about that. Uh, yeah. No. He liked. Uh, you know. He, he'd come. He. We, we came out here to visit a lot. He liked right. Australia. He. You know. Was interested in a change. And basically, when we decided to have kids and go through the surrogacy process right. of having a family, New York's a fabulous place to be in your twenties. Uh, it's not a great place. To, you know, it's a very expensive and it's got a lot of hassles if you're a middle-aged family trying to raise little kids. I yeah. didn't want to be taking kids down down strollers on yeah. icy steps down into a subway and you yeah. know, worrying about what preschool they were going to get into in order to get into the right primary school, to get into the right college and have to deal yeah. with private health insurance and New York City taxes and sanitation and what... Like, it's... Australia's... Why wouldn't you live in Australia? Hey. So much easier. Now, you have chosen uh, the fourth choice is possibly my number one place that I want to go to. And I have never been there. You bastard. You've chosen <laughs> Easter Island. Yes. Uh, and so I, I just want to, I mean, maybe we'll talk off air. I just want to hear all about Easter Island because I really want to go. But you specifically have said the rim of uh, the volcanic crater. But there are three of them, mate. Which yes, one? The big one. Uh, Rano, the main one. Rano Cow. The, the one, one, yeah, the one, on the one where the township, the one where the town, where the township is. Yeah. I've been Google imaging at that wow. site. It is. Whoa. So speaking about sunrises, right, yeah. and sunrise in Manhattan, while I was living in New York, I'm a bit of a travel hacker. So right. I, I play a game of arbitrage with frequent flyer points and acquire them cheaply. and then Wherever they can go, wherever. you can. And yeah, and so I go. Like it. So uh, a, a fair, a cheap fare came up with Latam or Lan Chile, one of the airline, one of the South American airlines, and I think it was about eight hundred bucks or something in business class return to anywhere in uh, you know the, these whole selection of places in South America. One of which was Easter Island. So I thought I'll just take a long weekend. God and go mate, to Easter Island. Good on you. Good on you. Go to Santiago for a night, <laughs> Easter Island for three nights, and then back to New York. Uh, and uh, you know, on a life flat bed, yeah. eight hundred bucks. So I thought it was just going to be a whimsical thing, and like you know, oh, this is a weird little place, and it was. And I was by myself, right? And I rented a quad bike. I'd been told that you know the thing to do, in addition to riding around the island, which I did, and beheld the big statues, the big heads, and everything. You know, that's great. The thing to do is go to the crate, go to the volcano, volcanic crater at sunrise and watch right. the sunrise. So I set my alarm for four or whatever and I rode up there on my quad bike and unbelievably I was the only person 
there. There was no one else there. It's huge. It's a mile it's across. Massive. Yeah, it, it, absolutely wow. massive. Yeah. So you're sitting on this crater. And I, there are moments in my life where I have expected some kind of epiphany and haven't got it, like the Grand Canyon or something. Like yes. I got to the Grand Canyon, I was like, it's a big yeah, hole. Yeah, I've seen it's, it in films. You yeah. know, I've seen it. It's like, it's big. But yeah. actually, it's so big that you can't really appreciate the size of it. I couldn't. I mean, yeah. it looked like a canyon in the Blue Mountains. It's pretty. Yeah. yeah. But like I sat there for 10 minutes waiting to be touched yeah, by the Spirit of God. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, it's not happening. A big hole in the ground. Great. Get back in the car. Go and get some uh, hot dogs. But on the rim of that volcano... Like as the sun rose, channeling Dawkins and Feynman and Sagan, right? Yeah. Here I am sitting in the middle of the biggest ocean on this blue-green rock as the rock tilts towards its mother yes. star and that star comes into view in its blazing orange glory across the blue water. I'm capable of marveling at that because I'm, again, made of the stuff that comes out of the stars. And I'm surrounded by this huge rim of this extraordinary geological volcanic phenomenon that is just a pop mark, a pinprick in the crust of this blazing rock that's boiling with magma underneath my feet. And I was like... It was just one of those moments where, I mean, I think it actually changed my relationship to spirituality for the rest of my life. I mean, it turned me from a diehard atheist into someone who was agnostic to the question of whether or not there's some vast ineffable purpose behind the cosmos and whether that purpose has a consciousness and could be called God. Because it was like, what the fuck is this all about? What on earth am I doing in this spot and why am I aware of myself at all? I, I just love your choices. So, so would you recommend, without the free Air Miles hack, me going? <laughs> Is it worth me going? If you pay... I think you, go you, with no expectations right. and just a sense of curiosity. And yes, yeah. it's weird. It's weird. This ancient extinct civilization in the middle of nowhere. I didn't know about the wonderful volcano. I mean, yeah. I've, been, I've been looking at pictures of it it's like a perfect it's like it's someone a per- has dropped it's a, a cricket ball in yes. some flour yeah yeah that's yeah, right yeah. exactly incredible yeah. it's the way that a, a an eight-year-old would draw a volcano a volcanic island yeah. you know if you ask if you ask them to the fifth choice yes is the possession yes and, and usually that's my favorite one mm. because because guests open up but mate you're like a you've been, you've been <laughs> spilling your guts all over the studio so <laughs> come on disappoint us uh, uh, well you've chosen a, well, actually it looks amazing from just the description a ticket stub uh, of the late show with david letterman you were in the audience yes tell so me about that. how old were you i was 18 God, you, so you had some glory. It's all downhill from I here, had, It's mate. all, oh, mate. The, days, the glory days are behind me. L.A., New get, York, I didn't, I didn't have kids and get married until I was well into my 30s. And so I had the, I had a whole life. Right. Like, you know, I never wanted to be someone who just settled down at the age of 20. I had I lived a great life. So when I was 18, uh, when I left school, before going to university, I, t- I deferred uni for a year right. and wanted to backpack around the world. I was going to backpack with a friend of mine. He decided to go straight to university and I was like, you know what, I'll just do it anyway. I worked you know, for six months at five jobs and, you know, all yeah. that kind yeah. of backbreaking labor and saved up $10,000 and, and traveled around the world. And I'd always been a fan of Woody Allen and uh, Jerry Seinfeld and, you know, Dave Letterman. But Letterman in particular, when Letterman 
got The Late Show, which was basically Johnny Carson retired and there was a fight over who would get The Tonight Show, which yep. was the, the crown jewel of, uh, of American broadcasting. And it was between Jay Leno and Dave Letterman. They gave it to Leno. Letterman did the show after The Tonight Show and was upset. Uh, they eventually reneged on Jay Leno and offered it to Letterman. Uh, Letterman asked Johnny Carson's counsel and Carson said, don't take it off Leno. It'll always feel like you stabbed him in the back. Go off, you know, do your own thing, be honourable. So Letterman went off and created a rival show to The Tonight Show. And for the next 20 years, the two of them battled it out in the ratings. And for the first time in history, there were these two shows. Now, of course, there are a million, there's four or something. Yeah. Um, but at the time, there were two. And when, when that happened and Letterman uh, created his own show uh, one of the Australian free-to-air broadcast television networks picked it up it must have just been in their bunch of rights that they had in a deal yeah. with CBS or something and they would put it on at these random times at 1.15 in the morning one night and you know then at 2 o'clock in the morning on another night and I would set the my VCR to tape it right and then I would copy the best bits onto another VCR and I had dozens and dozens of VCRs this is like me at the age of 14 right 13 or 14 <laughs> of VCR tapes of Letterman highlights uh, and at when he was at his peak I mean he was the, the speed of his mind mm. the acerbic nature of his wit his kind of grumpy misanthropy i suppose like his sort of he oozed a kind of disdain for showbiz uh a disdain for humankind uh a, a subtle contempt towards many of his guests and there were some sparring matches between him and celebrities i mean if, if people haven't seen his legendary interview with madonna in i guess it was about 93 or 94 He'd been doing jokes about how promiscuous she was for years and she'd declined coming on the show. She finally relented. She comes out and she sits down and her, the first words out of her mouth, uh, fuck you, Dave. <laughs> and she refuses to leave the stage. She just continues to uh, disrupt everything. And watching his, you know, what's the saying about there's nothing more beautiful than a brilliant mind in panic yeah. uh, or in flight? You know, he is he was just a master. And so when I was traveling around the world, I mean, the main thing that I wanted to do in my international trip was just go and see Letterman. So I wrote, I mean, I literally wrote away like eight months in advance to get a ticket for the night right. that I knew that I wanted to be there. And they mailed it all the way to Australia. It was ticket number one of that particular performance. Right. I got him before anybody else. And uh, that to me, just being there in that studio in that auditorium, seeing this person who I had lionized as a kid and watching him do his craft at what to me was the epicenter of broadcasting in a city that was the epicenter of the world wow. was like like a drug. I mean, I was like, why wouldn't you want to do this in any capacity that you could? So this was like a professional Easter Island. You go, you go, yeah. I, I, this didn't disappoint. Yeah, no, yeah. not at all. And, and then here you are. You might have had your heyday you know, tooling around LA and New York when you were an 18-year-old, but you are about to enter your second or maybe your third heyday because you, you are going large. You yes. Are, you are going to be the Rogan better watch his eye. <laughs> There's a new sheriff in town and I'm talking to him and he's called Zeps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. Th I, I believe that. I believe that. I mean, there, yes, I had a very fun 20s and then I had a very successful stint in my 30s when I was on HuffPost Live in New York and that was great because uh, that we, we felt like we were 
at the cutting edge of digital uh, media and all the big stars came by. And yeah, now I do feel like there there's enough of a change in the way that people are consuming media that it's clear that in 10 or 20 years, the idea of there being broadcast television and broadcast radio is going to be meaningless. Everything's going to be digital. You call it heritage media. Not, yes. And you go, that's brilliant. Yes. It's, so it's, it, or it is, legacy media, yes, you might have said. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it is a thing, but yeah. it's not mainstream. It's not mainstream My kids anymore. don't know that's right. It's, it's just like the old stuff. Yeah. yeah which is it's, fair enough, it, but it's, it's not... Exactly. It's not dominant. It's no, just the old stuff. No, yeah. that's right. Yeah, and, and I mean, the proof is in the pudding. I, when I was in New York and on HuffPost Live, I got a, a, a gig doing a regular spot on the Today Show, the NBC Today Show, which, right. much like Letterman, is, you know, a huge institution. Yeah. I mean, this is, it's, it, it's at 30 Rockefeller Center. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's iconic. You know, the, the Al Roker and Kathy Griffin and Matt Lauer and all this. And so I would, a, a limousine would pick me up, for, you know, at four in the morning. From, it was great. <laughs> it was like, I, you know, I felt so fancy. And I'd go in and I'd do four minutes <laughs> of bantering about the news with uh, with Kathy and uh, Kathy Lee and Hoda and Al Roker and uh, then uh, a limo would take me to HuffPost Live and that ostensibly is the most important show in America it ostensibly has hundreds of millions of viewers and my podcast at the time would not get any bump when I was on the Today Show. I might get one text message from, you know, an elderly <laughs> friend yeah. of a friend or colleague yeah. saying, oh, saw you on the Today Show, you know, while I was at an airport yes. lounge yes. or something. You yeah, know, yeah, you were yeah. on in the background. And I would go on Joe Rogan's show, which is a show that I've been on seven times. Yeah. And every time my podcast would become either the number one or number two ranked podcast on all of iTunes yeah. for the next 72 hours after going on Joe's show. So who has influence? Yeah. What's mainstream? The Today Show is mainstream because it's on in the background while people make their kids breakfasts and they're not paying attention to it. Yeah. But a podcast or a YouTube show that people really like and are passionate about, you know, forget about the fact that the, the raw numbers are even larger or just as large. Even if the numbers were one-tenth, I'd much rather have one-tenth the audience who cares deeply about what I'm saying than 10 times the audience who's making ham sandwiches and putting their kids shoes shoes on i think what you are already doing and what i i gather you're going to do it the world needs it and you're the right person to do it well, don't let any you. marketing numpty <coughs> yeah no, push you in the point. wrong place it's a good point because the, there is uh, there is the risk of audience capture i mean that's the thing so i mean we're expanding uncomfortable conversations from one episode a week to three episodes a week how we're launching a youtube well i'm not gonna i'm not gonna have an abc show anymore i've been pr- i've been presenting the afternoon show on abc radio daily for the past two years every single so, day so, so you're, you're, going, you're going part-time now i've got uh, yeah i'm uh, part-time okay. exactly i've got all the time in the world so uh yes i'm creating my own uh, you know whether I will expand a la Barry Weiss into creating an independent media company that has other people working for me mm. uh, you know remains to be seen but in the meantime people should subscribe to my brand new YouTube channel and, Dead right. and buy tickets to my live shows uh, which will be doing uh, you know uncomfortable conversations tours and of course subscribe to the to the podcast and uh, you can become a premium subscriber on the Substack. like there are there's this whole kind of empire of uncomfortable conversations that I can preside over and hopefully have a constructive role in helping people to have better conversations about the most important things, challenges that face us. And and I'm mindful of not sort of chasing clicks, yeah. chasing what, what what's going to pander to the audience because I do think that my point of differentiation is that I don't pander and that people always know that I'm going to tell it like it is. Are you aware of the Guilty Feminist podcast? 
Yes. So, so Deborah Francis Wise. Yeah. Uh, it, it just so, so I mean, I'm drawing an analogy. There you go. I mean, you couldn't be more different. But, <laughs> yeah. but so her, her shticks the wrong word. Her wonderful thing is, I, I'm a feminist, but. Yeah. Right, right. So, so, so I, I went on a march, you know, you know, a, a, a bra burning march. Yeah. But I missed the speeches because I ducked into David Jones to buy some. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But but she she's razor sharp. She, she's had like 115 million downloads. Yeah. Wow. Right. But, but but she didn't set out to get that. She just it was obviously you know the world's best, yes. most famous intellectual powerhouses gravitate towards Deborah's live show. I've seen her in the opera house. That being true to what yeah. you are. Yeah. And it yeah. being proper it's it was enabling women to be feminists and not be perfect yes it's, it's like you be gay but you yeah. haven't got a bestride a yeah blown up cock on a yeah. truck <laughs> right. you can if you want but yeah. you, you haven't got yeah. to only yeah. every other saturday <laughs> not every saturday <laughs> now there's six choices on five of my life yes. so i've named the bloody show wrong yeah. but it's too late now we've been going for five years yep. um who would you like to hear on five my life next and why does it have to be a, per- a real person who you could book you dead right they have to be they have to be alive mm. not dead and i have to be able to call them up uh, Letterman, yeah, Dave Letterman, yeah, great, would Done. be fascinating. Lock him in. I'll give him a ring uh, this give, afternoon. Give him a ring. <laughs> um, Peter Burner is, is a comedian who has a, a place in my heart uh, because I think he's one of the most underrated and funny and insightful Australian comics. Uh, he's an artist as well. Peter Burner. He, he got, uh, the, he got he? the Archibald. Peter Burner? Yes. Get out. Yes, he did. He did. He painted himself, and he got. He didn't Are you win. Serious? Yeah. 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 The things you find out from um, Josh, this has been really bloody wonderful. It's and such I'm a going joy. To, it's yeah. great. It's a great show. It's a great kind of... It's a, it's a, and it's a wonderful thing to have to unpack my own brain and uh, using the prism of those five things. It's great. I've enjoyed it. So my wife yeah. is going to hate you because what? I'm going to say, sweetheart, you know... <laughs> You know, you know, you wanted to go to Hawaii. Well, <laughs> well, Easter Island. <laughs> uh, Josh, thank you so much for sharing thank you. on Five My Life. It's a delight. In the past, I've struggled with feedback. Taking feedback. N- not good feedback. I love praise as much as the next person. But bad feedback. Criticism, constructive or otherwise. I get defensive If someone would say, I didn't like that podcast episode or that article, I'd take it as an attack on my whole person. It's as if they said my kids were ugly when all they said was I didn't like that particular guest. Or I'd argue with it. I'd debate the points they're making. Or I wouldn't listen properly. Or I'd dismiss it. Or even worse, I'd dismiss the person who was giving the feedback. You know, like, who are you to tell me, you know, what you think about my book or my podcast or my event? And... A few years back, I realised that I was missing out on a huge amount of learning and growth by having this sort of gap in my armour. So I decided to, to work on it, and I think I've come a little bit better at it. And I found two strategies that were game changers for me, and I thought I'd share them just in case some of you find them helpful. So the first uh, strategy for getting the most out of feedback is seek it out. Now, that's counterintuitive and and hard because I'm used to avoiding it and seeking praise and affirmation instead. But I'm suggesting doing the exact opposite of what you might want to do. Run to the fire, so to speak. View it as digging for treasure, not as avoiding an ego attack. Actually look for constructive, critical feedback. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when you get some feedback... Actively and intently listen to everything that is said. 
with an authentic belief that they may actually be right, or at least have one or two valid points. And be curious. Ask for them to elaborate and explain more. You know, you said you didn't like that podcast episode. Can I just understand why? You know, ask them for more. Ask them for suggestions for how to deal with the points they raise. You said you didn't like that episode because you thought it was too long or too short. How would you deal with that? And really importantly, do this even if you suspect that the person giving you the feedback is a total moron. And it's really important because if after genuinely listening and probing, you think their feedback is bollocks, fine, then you can dismiss it. But trust me, making a habit of creating space to seek out and actively, properly listen to feedback, wherever it comes from, can change your life. I hope that's helpful. Thanks for listening. And be sure to tune in next week to hear the delightful conversation with celebrity chef and businesswoman Maeve O'Meara. Please get in touch via my website, nigelmarsh.com.